Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. On today's episode, we revisit the topic of remote work on college campuses. Our guests explore ways to achieve the balance that university leaders are looking for as they work to preserve the vitality of campus life while at the same time extending greater flexibility to their employees, many of whom have zero interest in returning to a daily commute to their on-campus workspace. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, I am Sally Amoruso. I'm Chief Partner Officer at EAB, and welcome to Office Hours. We are here to explore the future of work and implications for higher ed. Um, and let me start by saying that it seems that the, with the world of work, there is really no going back to the way things used to be. Uh, that COVID has really accelerated some of the endemic trends that were already impacting the way we work. Trends like telework, um, automation and AI, and engaging with a global and contingent workforce. And so now our universities are having to prepare students for a world of work that has really shifted dramatically across COVID. Um, and quite frankly, many university faculty and staff are expecting, or at least desiring to retain some of the flexibility that they've um, become accustomed to across the pandemic. I've been speaking to a lot of university leaders who are in the process of trying to update or rethink their remote work policies for campuses. Um, as they are thinking about the, the fall. Um, and as we think about the world of work more generally, with um, more than 80% of workers saying they don't wanna return full-time to the office, um, that context is really important to consider, but higher ed is also unique in many ways. And so I am thrilled to share that I am joined today uh, by Brian Elliott, um, who um, is the head of Future Forum, a research consortium launched by Slack. And he's gonna help me to explore this sort of reimagined world of work for universities uh, and for preparing their students uh, for a digital first world. So welcome, Brian, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Thanks, Sally. Uh, thrilled to be here. Um, Brian, I'd love to kick our conversation off today by um, thinking about the event that you and I co-hosted, which was an experience lab where we had over 125 university presidents gathered virtually um, to talk about the future of work um, on, on two levels. One is the future of work um, as they think of themselves as employers, but also as they need to prepare students for that world of work. And we, we conducted some surveys across that uh, experience lab, and some of them perhaps were not surprised surprising, but certainly stood in stark contrast to what we're seeing outside of higher ed. Uh, so more than half, 56% uh, of the university presidents who attended said that they expect less than one quarter of their staff will be allowed to work from home two or, or more days per week post-COVID. And only 11% said that more than half of their staff would be uh, permitted to work from home two days or, or more per week. And you know, I wanted to um, ask your thoughts on that, Brian, because you're looking at the world of work um, more broadly. And this, as I said, is, is in pretty stark contrast to what we're seeing there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It definitely is. The last year has really changed people's expectations about the trade-offs between um, work and home, uh, between getting that work-life balance and you know, cutting the commute benefits that they've seen, while also right. proving to their employers that they can be productive, that they can get the work done you know, our survey instrument and, and many others have shown that people have actually been as productive or even more productive working from right. home in, in a number of ways. 
And so what we're seeing starting to happen uh, broadly across companies in, in a variety of different industries is this desire for flexibility that people are expressing is going to become a, uh, a talent uh, issue. It's going to become mm-hmm. an issue around the thing that's actually most important to most companies, which is how do you attract, retain, and engage highly talented individuals in your enterprise? And right. just like compensation, flexibility is actually going to be a key component of how you make that happen. That um, makes complete sense. And I think, um, I forget what the source was, it might have been LinkedIn, um, but there was a a study um, looking at search terms and attributes that new employees are looking for as they are seeking new work and flexible work is now at the top um, of those search terms. Completely understandably. When you look at our own survey results, so we've now done this uh, several times in a row, a couple quarters running. It's a survey of 9,000 knowledge workers around the globe. And what we see in in, in the latest results from December were there's about 17% of people that want to go back to five days a week full-time in the office. There's only about 20% that want to go to um, completely remote, meaning never coming into an office. Sure. The vast majority of people, the, the 63% that sit in the middle, want flexibility. They want the ability to work from home more often. It's also conditioned on what you've been doing for the past year. So if right. you've been one of those people that's been working remotely for the past year because of uh, COVID conditions and lockdowns and the rest of it, that 17% that want to come back full-time uh, drops to 6%. So mm-hmm. this is this is becoming a key issue for people. And it's also understandable that it's not just that they're seeing the benefits. This fall, in a lot of places, is still not going to be a fully normalized experience. People are concerned right. about variants, but there's also issues around our school is going to be fully reopened. Will children actually be vaccinated? Right. What's the situation going to be in particular as we get into um, uh, caregivers uh, and particularly parents with children? Uh, it's it's a bigger challenge. So when I think about the, the last year um, or year and a few months now, um, certainly remote work um, is a big part of that, but also the stress and, and the conversations around uh, mental health and um, and burnout uh, have been constant themes and conversations. Can you, you talk about what you're seeing there as well? Yeah, so in, in our survey, we've done because we've done this a couple of quarters in a row, we can actually look at what's been happening over time. And so what we saw in December versus what we saw back in Q3, for example, uh, was a marked increase in people's, a, a marked decrease in their work-life balance, a marked decrease in their ability to manage stress working from home, and that's, that's understandable because if you think about the situation that many people were in, you were in a second wave of lockdowns, you were going yes. from, you know, a summer when you could at least get outdoors more often to winter when people are often, you know, closed in. And it's just been this continued stressful environment. I think as we've gotten yes. into the spring and people start looking forward to, you know, being vaccinated and getting out more and the relaxation of constraints, there's this sort of big, you know, relief factor that comes uh, along with that. But even so, the if you think about the combination of uh, the length of the pandemic, the challenge that people have been under, and the stresses that we've put into you know managers in particular, there's an ongoing need for ensuring that we are you know providing tools and guidelines and support for people's mental health and well-being as much as their um, work productivity. So for our listeners who are thinking about embracing a more hybrid approach, what are some of the strategies that you've seen work in um, creating team cultures and alleviating some of that isolation that might come from, from virtual work? So some of this comes to uh, the role of managers in helping people move from being 
sort of attendance-driven, you know, productivity um, uh, uh, monitors, for lack of a better term, right. to kind of um, work that's always been going on in the background for the past couple of decades anyway, which is how do you um, build teams that that engage everyone in the team, that engage them in the purpose and the mission of your institution, but also what your, your team is all about. So what we've seen over the course of the past year is that people who lead from purpose haven't had an easier time sort of instilling that sense of belonging in their team. But we've also seen a lot of people adopt new ways to build culture, even while they're distributed. So that often comes to like, how do you use digital tools to make that happen? So right. connectedness, the ability for people to stay in communication with one another, to share information and knowledge is one side of it, but it's also the digital water cooler conversation. So uh, Slack, as an example, has, you know, always had, you know, a, a lot of people using it not only for work and work productivity, but also for the, the digital water cooler conversation. And there's a, a cute app called Giphy, which is, you know, sending humorous gifts around that if I talked to a CIO of a company three years ago, I would have gotten a lot of questions about why does Giphy exist and isn't this kind of silly and, and not helpful to work. The same people over the course of the past year have turned around and said, thank God for the water cooler conversation in Slack and for Giphy, because they get that it actually helps teams know and understand one another personally to build sure. a sense of camaraderie uh, and to, to build a sense of belonging. And in our, in our research, we've seen that connectedness, that digital connectedness play out because teams that were investing in digital tools to support one another um, from Q3 to Q4 actually took a sense of belonging that was negative and turned it to a positive, which is pretty amazing when you consider the circumstances everyone is in. And I seem to recall that you had some really interesting research about um, diversity and uh, diverse employees and their experience of the virtual world versus the physical workplace. Can you share some of that? Yeah, there, there are some things that showed up that were unfortunately, but, but really indicative of the same societal issues that we've seen playing out on the TV. So black employees in our survey instrument felt far less supported by their managers and even by their teams than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that shows in our survey and in our research. What was interesting is that black employees though also felt a better sense of belonging working remotely than their white counterparts. And when we, when we uh, mm -hmm. dug into even issues like, what do you wanna have your work experience look like coming out of this? Uh, back to the, you know, what percentage of people want to be full-time in an office, it was 24% for white employees. It was 3% for black employees. So we've been working with a group called Management Leadership for Tomorrow. They work mm -hmm. on uh, diversity, managerial training, uh, uh, executive uh, support for black and Latinx uh, uh, employees in the United States. Between them and a set of academics, we've gotten into issues like code switching. It's the, the, the cost of... Um, Code switching in a continual in-office nine to five environment uh, is far different than if you are coming into that office environment two or three days a week, right. or if you are dialed in for a set of meetings and then can dial back out uh, and recharge your energy and your batteries. Um, that's one side of it. The other is, uh, the, and that, that shows up in that flexibility factor around where you work. Flexibility in, in people's schedules is actually, uh, in our research, shows even more potential to help improve people's productivity and work-life balance. And again, it, it disproportionately benefits people who often are left out. It disproportionately benefits women with children in particular. Sure. So uh, parents with children have had a really rough year altogether. 
uh, women with children and women in, in survey, particular, women yes. <laughs> with children in our survey results disproportionately versus men with children in the United States and in the yes. UK um, have been far more challenged. And if you can allow flexibility in schedules, if you can allow people to just break the confines of the nine to five, and importantly, if you can get out of the nonstop day full of video conference meetings, um, mm -hmm. you help them deal with real at home issues that are often going on. And so this flexibility, the digital tooling pairs up really nicely with inclusiveness, pairs up with the ability to build not just diverse teams, but to have people feel like they are truly included and part of your team because you're no longer um, bringing them into what was, you know, a historically office-based environment with um, that was, you know, often dominated by loudmouth white guys like me, to be blunt, <laughs> um, that would, you know, hold the pen uh, at the front of the room. So there may be some side benefits to considering flexible um, work arrangements, um, I think is what you're, you're saying. Absolutely. Your Absolutely. So yeah, the flexibility shows up in, in the desires of a lot of people who've been through, through all of this. Sure. It's disproportionately what people want. They want flexibility, not a fully remote or a fully in-office environment. It's disproportionately beneficial for building inclusive teams, but it's also really important from a, a connectivity perspective. So um, when I think about higher ed, it is, um, it is a unique uh, industry in many ways um, in that um, it is uh, for many institutions um, very place bound uh, and the student experience um, is really central. Um, and so how would you translate some of the practices or strategies you're seeing in the private sector uh, to to leaders in higher ed who might be thinking about this issue. Yeah, it's interesting uh, in terms of how we've actually talked with companies in a variety of different positions. I mean, Slack as a software company is um, it's much easier for us to contemplate how we have a fully digital first experience that still allows people to come into offices for team building and belonging, but has a, a largely digital aspect because there's very little of what we do that requires you to be in a shared space with someone to fulfill your job. That's not true as we talk to companies like Levi's. Right. Um, so Levi's is a great example. We've we've gone fairly deep uh, with, with them and their team. They have both people who are in retail stores that have to support the retail store, but they also have people on their team that have to be in an office to physically touch, feel, work with materials, right? You, it's really hard. Same thing with pharmaceutical companies. You have people that have, have to be in from a, a lab experience perspective. Now, most of those folks have also found ways to bring in flexibility into those environments. So in the case of, you know, the Levi's, you know, in-office handling materials or a lab technician at a pharmaceutical company, there are aspects of your work that require that, but there are also things that are you, that you are doing. The analytics on the lab experiment, right. the, the write-up of the marketing campaign that don't require you to be there. <laughs> so you'll often see those people are going to get disproportionate access to shared space because they need it the most. And they're the ones that you still can allow flexibility on the portion of the week when they don't need to be you know, physically present in order to do it. And again, this comes back to it's not an all or nothing game. It's, it's, it's a partial type of thing. And then Levi's and others that have um, essentially retail demands, part of what they're trying to do is find ways to allow employees to have flexibility among themselves. You have to be there to serve the needs of your constituent. How do you allow people to have you know, four-hour time blocks instead of eight-hour time blocks? How do you allow shift swapping 
among employees? How do you create opportunities for people to create the flexibility they need to deal with things in their lives while also serving the needs of your customer? And so there, there may be some benefits uh, from a, and some analogies there from a, a um, academic perspective. Helpful. So Sally, I'd love to ask you a question relative, relative to that. You work much more closely with college presidents than I do. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's driving that hesitation that we saw in the survey results. Sure. And thank you for that question, Brian. You know, higher ed is not monolithic. And so I will say there is a spectrum of attitudes here. Um, I just uh, spoke to uh, one institutional president who is absolutely committed to continuing a high flex environment for his students and allowing his um, employees and even his faculty to have a, a lot more flexibility. Um, and then there are others, as we heard um, at the Experience Lab, who are really trying to navigate this along a couple of dimensions. Um, one is uh, what I just alluded to before, which is the primacy of place for many campuses. And students really made it clear for many institutions across this last year that they very much value that uh, in-person experience. And so part of what presidents are trying to do there is to understand what elements of the in-person experience they value. It's probably not the large lecture hall where the student is one of 200 students um, and sitting in you know, the fifth row and can barely see the, the professor, but it may be those moments of interaction that really um, create um, a, a deeper learning experience. Um, and uh, certainly you can think about some uh, majors and programs where it's, it's sort of required, whether that is a, a clinically oriented program or programs with lab work uh, or the performing arts. The other um, dimension that presidents are trying to navigate here is equity. So um, allowing some employees and some faculty members to have flexibility without, without allowing others to have that same flexibility is sort of a cultural anathema uh, to higher ed, which um, is really um, a, a culture that tries to be as equitable as possible. Um, and yet roles and activities require different levels of on-campus presence to your point earlier. So they're trying to just sort of parse that out and to see whether there are um, equitable remote work policies that, uh, that can be uh, brought to bear. Um, and then I would say, um, Finally, there is a level of parsing all of these questions that requires us to go even further, um, whether it's in the modality of education um, and thinking not just remote, um, uh, you know, online versus in person, but synchronous versus asynchronous. Um, high flex is a really aspirational vision, which is you have on-ramps and off-ramps and you can um, take uh, both or either uh, online or in-person as you wish. Um, so there are lots of different flavors across that spectrum um, that you need to sort of parse out and understand as to your student population and your faculty and your staff, you know, what makes sense for you. There's some fantastic analogies in that to things that we've seen happening across other companies and, and even within our own. So if you think about like that, that student experience and, and what people are looking for in the sort of uh, flipped classroom uh, yes. almost, uh, side of things, the, the, the in-company equivalent is um, the status meeting. So the 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 in person, you know, one of the key That's challenges great. that a lot of middle managers have faced this year is how do we keep in, on top of the work of my team when everybody's distributed? And often what they fall into is we'll just add another status meeting, 
And so you add a status meeting to the calendar and everybody's in a meeting where the, where the, you know, there are 40 of you and the, it's a race to say that my project is on track, <laughs> which is a really bad use of, of time. People's time, yes. Adds, adds to, you know, the, the Zoom fatigue and the challenges that people have been seeing. And it's absolutely the kind of thing that you can do asynchronously. And so thinking right. about like, how do you, how do you arm people with the tools and the processes to asynchronously share status and information? And another example is even just communications within your own company. So we've taken, we've seen others doing this too, to having the asynchronous all hands or the asynchronous team meeting. So we'll record the, the content of the all hands. It'll actually be shared. It'll literally be blocked on people's calendars if they want to watch it all at the same time. Uh, at you know nine o'clock in the morning Pacific time, the all hands is going to run, but you can also go back and watch it anytime later after that. And what it gives people is, especially when you think about people who are more geographically distributed, but also people whose days are busy, um, it gives them the chance to consume that content on their own schedule. The fact that you can play it back at 1.5 times speed may also be a benefit <laughs> at times, but people can also then comment on that all hands. They can ask questions about it you know, in a, in a Slack channel. Or they could do the same thing potentially in email, but it's just good ways to take things that you don't really need to consume information from someone synchronously. Forcing right. everyone to show up at the same time to consume information is not necessarily. What you need is you need synchronous time to come, other, to come together and problem solve and to build sense of belonging. And so whether it's, I think, uh, education, higher ed, whether it's in high tech, finance, uh, retail, the ability to figure out how do we blend synchronous time together and make it more meaningful uh, with asynchronous capabilities to do your own individual work and to share knowledge and information transparently, I think is going to be really key to making this work. And we're all going to have to discover it for ourselves. Those are terrific points. And actually, it reminds me of um, this phrase that John Mitchell um, from Stanford um, shared at the Experience Lab. Um, and he was there with us co-presenting. And it's this idea of beyond being there. So when COVID first hit, and um, higher ed had to bring all of uh, the classes online, it was very much emergency remote instruction. So there was a lot of lecturing by Zoom. Um, but as we iterated and as we improved um, our pedagogy across COVID, you see much more of what you're talking about, which is how do we actually use this virtual environment in new and better ways? How do we create that experiential learning element in, in the Zoom world? And the didactic portion of it is probably the least relevant from a synchronous standpoint. And there may actually be benefits to students to having it recorded and consumed beforehand or, or after and being able to refer to it. Um, you can think of students with different learning styles, um, students where English is not their first language, or students who perhaps just aren't great note takers who can go back and, and replay um, lectures um, and really be able to absorb much more meaning uh, from those recordings than they ever would have in, in a synchronous environment. It's a fantastic bridge back to the topic that you mentioned last time too, which is the, the equitable access um, and, and, and the, the topic of equity itself, right? So in, in companies that are wrestling with this hybrid future that, that most companies are, are headed towards, the, the biggest guidelines that we've got are start off with your principles. Start off with, as an institution, what's most important to you? And there's some work that we'll be releasing in about a month or so around some of this, but principles are often things like equitable access, inclusiveness. How do I build a 
environment that allows her people to feel like they've got equal access yes. while also providing um, flexibility because we know flexibility disproportionately benefits uh, different groups. You have to think about that that equity access with a with a somewhat different lens. It's much more about like how do I make sure that my introverts and my extroverts uh, uh, are are both able to contribute ideas uh, in a brainstorming session, as an example. Yes. that's different from even just like how and where do people get the work done. I think the the digital capabilities though have a, a they it's almost a double edged sword in some ways um, because the flexibility that the digital uh, environment provides um, is most meaningful to students who probably have other responsibilities or maybe have to work um, or live far from campus. Um, and yet the, the digital divide that we saw across this last year goes to the fact that many of those same students don't have um, the digital infrastructure or the, the uh, quiet place at home or the high speed bandwidth to actually engage online. So there is certainly um, an infrastructure need that we need to fill if we're gonna really realize the potential a uh, more hybrid environment. Absolutely, both in in you know select parts of urban environments, unfortunately, as well as obviously rural environments. We did some work with an, a group called Year Up, uh, Y E R U P, that focuses on helping uh, people uh, post high school bridge the opportunity divide. And one of their key issues was funding uh, MiFi devices, funding right. you know uh, wireless access devices for people who would have had an in office internship, but now found themselves attempting to do that from their apartment but didn't have broadband uh, in order to be able to do the work. And so we're gonna have to find a way to, to close those gaps as well. And you all do work with um, higher ed institutions who have been perhaps more at the forefront, forefront of really embracing this, um, this more hybrid environment. Any takeaways from your work there that you would wanna share more broadly with higher ed leaders? Absolutely. I mean, Slack itself has done a lot of work with like Arizona State University in terms of how do they uh, instrument not only the, the sort of internal workflows of how things come together, but also student faculty interactions. Uh, Dartmouth did the same thing. Uh, Dartmouth's uh, CIO uh, uh, spoke at, at the, the conference that, that you and I uh, went to together and talked about the fact that it was really critical, especially over the course of this past year, to have tools that allow that were easy to use for everybody across the institution, but that also helped people to bring together conversations that bridged different communities and different groups. Mm -hmm. And you know, Slack has built, played a key role for people in things like not only how do we do you know the the back office and infrastructure work of the university, mm -hmm. but how do we allow for faculty student interaction that's both appropriate and and necessary. Right. Around things as simple as you know, uh, uh, how do I how do I have a conversation with somebody when we're distributed off campus uh, to scheduling you know office hours and finding out when and where they are. Um, that's really helpful, and and it, it also reminds me that there were also some silver linings, if you will, from COVID and from our exploration of digital capabilities that I've been hearing about quite a bit, that there are some things that we found we could do even better virtually, particularly around frequency and reach. Um, so uh, advising, virtual advising Absolutely. and being able to reach students uh, for a 15 minute check-in versus having to have them come in and schedule you know, a formal appointment or um, fundraising uh, or even um, virtual visits to campus, which I, many schools are not going to do away with now that students can come to campus 
in person because from an equity lens, as you were pointing out, the, the ability to experience that virtually um, can actually reach students who maybe can't afford to, to visit campuses. Yeah. Um, so I do think there's some silver linings that we can take away from this as well. Completely agree. And I think to some degree, this is getting into some of the things that that we've been talking about around what's the best of both worlds, uh, yes. both, both best of both worlds that, that we could approach. So I'd love, I'd love your, what's, what's your top pieces of advice from a, you know, if you were, if you were talking with any given university uh, president, any university leader that's struggling with this, uh, what, yes. what next steps would you advise? Well, let me take the best of both worlds approach and, and to, um, to present a slight variation, which I would say take the best of each world and really think about what we learned across this last year um, as to what each um, world uh, allowed us to do, um, perhaps not just better, but uniquely. Um, so we touched on some of these, but you know, what did we find worked um, in the virtual environment that we just couldn't replicate? in person, um, whether that was um, reaching students or providing flexibility, radical flexibility um, in ways that accommodated their life um, that we couldn't do in person. And then um, likewise on the in-person side, what are the things that really contribute to learning and to the student experience that we can't replicate because they are really endemic of the in-person experience and bringing that together in a different vision um, for the higher ed experience, if you will. Um, and again, I think each school needs to do this um, on its own because their student populations are different. Um, and um, so you need to take that and put that at the center as well. The second is to keep in mind that students are digital natives. Um, I'm a parent, as you are, of um, college age uh, students. And we know that they don't live um, on digital and off digital, they are actually existing in both worlds at the same time. Um, I've also heard from presidents um, and provosts and faculty members that students across this last year, even in environments where they have been able to go to class in person, have often been in the residence hall choosing to take some classes online. And so recognizing that they are digital natives um, and that they exist in both worlds and being able to meet them where they are. And then thirdly, I would say keeping in mind that the world of work is already ahead of us on this and we need to prepare students and give them the experiences um, during college that prepare them to lead, to collaborate, to manage and problem solve in a hybrid work world. Um, so those are the top three that I would have. But, but Brian, um, you know, given your perspective, which I think is the other side of the, um, the coin, you know, what, what would you um, provide as advice or how would you direct folks to think about opportunities um, as they look to build this next, next envisioned future for higher ed? So I've got uh, three things as well. From a broad perspective, every large institution uh, is dealing with all of the same questions that we're addressing here. So start off with what are your principles? From our standpoint, from our research stands, research's standpoint, flexibility, providing people flexibility, yes. uh, building inclusiveness, using that flexibility to build a more inclusive environment, and figuring out what connection means to you and especially how you use digital tools to close those divides between all these different modalities of how people communicate and how they come together is really critical. So from a principled perspective, 
making sure you're thinking through and talking through uh, those specific issues. Second is most of this is not going to be solved top down. That top that that at the top alignment on principles is important, but you're going to need to find pilot programs within your institution. You're going to need to find teams that exist in different parts of any given organization, whether that is you know, the faculty-student interaction, whether it is campus services, whether it is financial aid and back, and back office uh, parts of it, find teams with volunteers that will test out new ways of working, of doing things mm. like simple guideline we've given to people, one dials in, all dial in for meetings, to not have this in the room versus remote divide. Those pilots can be really valuable. Third is a little different. Third is there's this massive opportunity because we are undergoing the sea change and the sort of acceleration of the need for people to develop new skills and new capabilities in the private sector. And there is a massive opportunity from a collaboration perspective, I believe, between higher education and the private sector on how do we train people with the skills they're going to need to have that a lot of your current students coming out of college and university are going to have around being digitally native, sure. but also reskilling to specific skills and capabilities as well on a much broader basis. And so a lot of companies are starting to wrestle with this just now and finding ways to blend, you know, uh, private partnership with uh, public purpose, I think is going to be a massive opportunity from a higher ed perspective over the course of the next decade. Those are great pieces of advice. And I think um, as you implied it's important to keep in mind that um, these pilots are going to lead to an iterative process. And so a year or two years from now, we may have a very different view of what is possible um, and what is positive for our students and our employees and our faculty. So, so thank you. Absolutely. I really appreciate your, your um, insight and your advice, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us um, at Office Hours with EAD. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us again next week when we're joined by Dr. Angela Clark-Taylor, Director of the Flora Stone Mather Center for Women at Case Western Reserve University, and Kate Volzer, the CEO and co-founder of Wiser, a student engagement technology company that recently became a part of EAB. The two will talk about their own career journeys and offer strategies for women who are looking to push through barriers and reach their own career goals in higher education. Until then, thanks for listening.